0: Alright, welcome to the Lowly Shepherd Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Pastor Jay, and uh, this week we're going to get into the second part of our three-part series on how to effectively study your Bible. Uh, most people just um, really don't know what to do when it comes to the Bible. They'll read it and they kind of try to pull some application out of it or say, well, what does this have to do with me? And uh, and that's really about the end of it. And uh, most of the... the uh, understanding in the context of trying to figure out what's going on they might get from a sermon or they might get from Sunday school but uh, as far as just you know on their own personal Bible study a lot of people just really don't understand what to do with that and why some of this matters I actually had a a guy tell me at one time at a previous church He's like, why can't I just read the Bible and do what it says why do I have to do all this study stuff and all that highfalutin you know seminary level you know graduate level stuff I says well you don't have to be a seminary student but you do have to study the Bible it is essential to study the Bible and it's essential because the Bible was written to different people in a different time and a different culture than what we exist in today and that's a huge issue because what you're reading on this page might not be saying what you think it means and if you're taking it the wrong way and if this is in fact the Word of God we want to know exactly what God was saying uh, to them and to ultimately to us. And we don't want to misunderstand what's being said there. And unfortunately, a lot of misunderstanding happens from so-called, you know so quote-unquote, just reading the Bible and doing what it says. Well, if you're misreading it, if you're misunderstanding it, then you've got a huge problem. And so, part of, like I said, part of the reason why I wanted to do this was to talk about how to properly understand and do Bible study. I also want to encourage you that it's not an impossible task. I know it seems so so hard at first because there's so much going on and there's so many different things you have to consider. But once you get into this and once you understand what's going on, it's so much easier to to understand what's going on in any given particular passage. And as I'll talk about mostly next week, there are so, so many free, easily accessible online uh, materials that will help you and aid you in better understanding what the Bible is speaking and saying to them and to us as well. And so getting into uh, part two this week, part one, we talked about those three basic rules of thumb. We talked about observing, you know, what is the passage saying, interpreting, what does it mean in its context to its original audience, and then applying, uh, what does that mean for me? What, What do I do with this? How do I respond to that? Uh, And we talked about how that application is really the most essential part. If we just do the first two and don't do the last part, which a lot of, you know, some of the more scholarly people might focus on those things, but we got to focus it on the application as well. Otherwise, what's the point of doing all this work? That's ultimately what we all want to know. What does this have to do with me? What do I do with this? And uh, we talked about how Bible translations are, are you know, come into being and, and what the philosophies and the different understanding of how those, those translations come into being and which one's the best. Um, really just depends upon whether, you know, what you're looking for and what you generally t- typically kind of like. Most of the mainstream uh, English translations of the Bible are all perfectly good translations. Um, but as we're going to talk about today, they're not all perfect because they're all translations of the original languages that the Bible was written in, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And uh, no translation is going to be 100% perfect because the languages are not a one-to-one ratio correspondence between them. Uh, sometimes you might have three or four English words trying to convey a, a nuanced thought in a Greek one Greek word. Uh, oftentimes there might be you know, shades of meaning that never come through and that's what we're gonna talk about in the second part today in word study and context and so getting into it today uh, the next part I want to talk about uh, in this session I want to talk about context is king context is king context is the most important thing about reading any passage of Scripture and uh, you've probably heard that before, you probably sort of understand it, but I bet you don't understand all the levels of context that you actually have to consider. Most people, when they talk about context or reading the Bible in context, what they're really talking about is just the immediate context. And uh, that has to do more with uh, you know, the literary uh, focus of how things are constructed within the sentence, within the, the, the grammar, uh, sort of grammatical rules of what's going on there. Uh, but that's not really going to help you too much uh, you know, beyond just that local level. There's actually a lot of other contexts that you have to consider as well. Um, before we get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about a couple of, of those uh, big, big words I, I talked about last time. We talked about the hermeneutical gap, uh, which is basically the, the bridging the gap between the there and then, what was written to that original audience, and then the here and now. How does this apply to me? And The the goal of all Bible study and exegesis and, and hermeneutics is to bridge that gap from what did it mean to them to the original audience, what do I do with this today? And so that's what we're going to be trying to do with any Bible study, any Bible lesson that we do, any Bible reading, anything that we're looking at, we want to bridge that gap between the there and then and the here and now. Part of what we have to do is another big fancy word, I just I just used it, uh, is exegesis. Exegesis is a Greek word that means to pull out meaning, to pull out the meaning of something. And so it means when you're reading a passage, you want to be able to pull out what the original context is, which the original intended meaning of that passage is. Because, to be sure, every author that wrote every book of the Bible had an intention, uh, an axe to grind, a particular issue that they were focusing on. They had a certain meaning and understanding of what they were trying to convey with their words. And they were intending it for a particular audience. Uh, None of the books of the Bible were necessarily written just as a general, just, hey, I'm going to throw this out there for anybody and everybody that wants to read it. Most of them are situational, particularly in the New Testament, Uh, You have a lot of, uh, like, Paul's letters. Well, those were written, you know, the book of 1 Corinthians was not written to us. It was written to the church in Corinth in the first century that was going through very, very specific problems. And he addresses those specific problems. Paul was not writing that letter with, uh, you know, Prosperity, uh, you know, you know, posterity, rather in mind that this was going to linger on for two thousand years. I'm sure when he wrote this, he was only writing a letter, you know, that was intended for that audience at that time. So understanding that means that there can, we can't read something into that text. We can only pull out what that original meaning was. If we're reading into the text our notions, our modern understandings of things, that's another word. is called isogesis. Isogesis. That means we're reading in. meaning into the text and unfortunately a lot of people in churches today and of course those outside the church do this too too often where they're taking a modern context a modern understanding of how things work and we're reading it back into the scripture we're basically twisting the scripture to make it say what we think it should say according to our modern principles and understanding Uh, we do this a lot with like scientific understanding well you know, science uh, as a field of study has expanded, you know, exponentially since the first century when a lot of these, these books were written. So if I'm reading something, well, that's not completely 100% scientifically accurate. So I must be reading something differently in here. You must mean something. No, 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 no. They didn't have those scientific understanding. They weren't writing it to be a scientific textbook. Uh, They were basing it off of the general principles and understandings of their day. And so we can't read modern sensibilities. We can't read modern uh, historical, you know, the way history textbooks are written today. We can't read that kind of standard back into ancient texts. Doesn't mean that they're not accurate and they're not truthful. It just means we can't put that kind of uh, implications and standards upon things because that wasn't what it was in those days. Uh, Luke, for example, is actually a very, very good, solid historical book. Uh, more so than a lot of other uh, ancient texts. Uh, but but it wouldn't meet a lot of the criteria for like a modern history book. So does that mean it's not valuable? Well, no. It just means we're reading our modern standards into that. Uh, you won't see this more than... In, uh, th- this particular type of reading things into Scripture, you see it more often in the book of Revelation than anywhere else in the Bible, unfortunately. Uh, you have that whole, uh, back in the 50s, 60s with the Hal Lindsey's and, and you know the Grant Jeffries and a lot of these guys, and then, of course, later on, Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series. You've got a lot of people reading modern takes and modern understanding of things back into this first-century apocalyptic work that just is not going to work at all because here's a key rule of thumb and you can highlight this a passage of Scripture can not mean something that it did not mean to its original audience it just can't so for example in Revelation I can't read a passage in Revelation and say well this is talking about Apache attack helicopters um, no they didn't have those things in the first century that's not what the locust in revelation 9 they're not helicopters they're described as locust and now it's metaphorical it's figurative language it's a metaphor for something but they understood what the metaphor was for and it was not some kind of futuristic tech that's not how you read the bible uh, and unfortunately, like I said, revelation is probably the worst offender for that kind of thing. So we always want to make sure that we are reading, when we're reading Scripture, we're pulling out the original meaning, not reading into the Bible, something that's not there, reading our modern uh, implications back into it. At all times, as second 2 Timothy two fifteen says, we want to do our best to present ourselves approved to God as a worker as who does not need to be ashamed as one who rightly handles the word of truth that's why we study the bible we want to be able to rightly understand what god's word is to us and so if we're doing that properly and effectively the word of god is going to speak to us on multiple levels and apply to us in ways that we could not even imagine before and uh, you're going to the more you study this book the more you're going to find shades and nuances and depths of meaning that you have just Never knew we were there, uh, and it's an amazingly deeply rewarding experience. And I want everyone. And there's no reason why everyone can't have that same experience with the Bible. You don't have to be a pastor with 500 seminary degrees and a PhD to effectively study your Bible. And that's what I want to do with this podcast: is be able to share that kind of information with you and show you the the richness and the and the depths and the, and the awesomeness of God's Word. So let's talk about it. Context. Why is context so important and how many different contexts are there? Well, as I said, most people tend to just look at one level uh, and they talk about uh, the the immediate context. They'll talk about, okay, if I'm reading this one verse, this one passage of Scripture, I need to read the verse before it and the verse after it. And sometimes they kind of stop there. They'll just read one verse before or one verse after that's good. We need to do that. So, yes, the very first level of understanding context is the grammatical context of what comes before and what comes after. What does the sentence, you know, the sentence before and the sentence after say that kind of determines what's going on in this passage? Context is everything. Um, <laughs> I saw this cartoon one time where it had like two, two panels and it had a group of you know, teenage guys hanging out and one guy says, Hey, I'm hungry. Let's eat okay yeah great they're gonna all go out to eat and then the next panel had a, uh, like a Tyrannosaurus Rex talking to a group of kids that was running away from him and he's saying hey guys I'm hungry let's eat well the context kind of makes that seem a little more nefarious than the first one and so context has a lot to do with how we understand what's going on in a particular passage um, I always like to use the example out of Proverbs. You know, there's a proverb that says, and there's one in Psalms as well. If you read a certain, just a piece of one sentence, there's a passage in the Bible that says, there is no God. Always shock people when I say that. And they're like, what? There's a passage that says there's no God? I said, well, if you read the full context, right? If you read the full sentence, it says, only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, that, that changes the meaning completely. Unfortunately, like I said, a lot of people will read Scripture and they'll pull something out of context and and change it to mean something that it never meant. The worst offender that I've seen so often is uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You'll see it on those little eye blacks for football players, and the guys will kneel down in the end zone and point up to heaven, you know, whatever. It's like, I can can score that touchdown through Christ who strengthens me, or I can get an A on this test through Christ who strengthens me, right? And so we kind of use that as some sort of, um, you know, rah, rah, rah sort of uh, text. But if you read the full context of what he's talking about in Philippians, Paul, he talks about, he starts out that whole section talking about all the struggles that he's endured, and then he says hey i've learned the secret of contentment i can be happy when i'm full i can be happy when i'm starving i can be happy when i'm rich i can be happy when i'm poor i can do anything through christ who gives me strength the point is not that christ is some kind of genie that gives you power you know some kind of energizer bunny that gives you power up to do whatever you need to do the point is i'm content because i'm in christ it doesn't matter all these other circumstances that i go through and so we, we kind of lose the impact of the meaning when we take things out of context. So we must look at the immediate context. That's the first and most important section, most important level. But it doesn't stop there. And that's unfortunately where a lot of people stop. You have to read not just the sentence before, the sentence after. You have to read the sentences, plural, before and after. You have to really read the chapter before and after. A lot of people kind of miss this uh, in the Bible, but, you know, the Bible, when it was originally written, didn't come with chapters and verses. It was just one long text in a scroll. The chapters and verse numbers were added in in the Middle Ages to kind of help find references when people were needing to read something, and they would, hey, turn to this section here, right? And so we, we tend to just kind of read it in little short segments rather than reading the fuller context. Another key example of that is in Paul's letters. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he didn't write it in you know twelve different sections or thirteen different sections. He you know he wrote it as one long continuous letter. I always encourage my people. It's like when we're reading, especially the letters of Paul, uh, you know, and we're going to be getting into the book of Ephesians here in a couple of weeks. I would encourage you sit down and read all six chapters of the book of Ephesians in one sitting because it was written as one continuous letter. It wasn't broken up in chapters and verses. Um, And so you need to read the fuller context to understand what Paul's talking about. What's the main theme, the main idea of what Paul is conveying in this entire book, not just in this one passage, because what's in this passage is going to correspond and has been built upon the things before it to, to bring up to where it is now. And so you have to understand the fuller context of what's going on around it and so that's the second level we need to look thematically and theologically what is the context of what Paul is saying in the full theme of the book all right or, or whoever the writer is you know John the book of John or whatever so we need to be able to look at the full book and get the fuller context of what's going on there as well the next level you need to look at the literary context and uh, we will spend a lot more time talking about this next week when we get to genre Uh, But we'll talk about the genre of, you know, what is the genre? What is the type of writing? Is it a letter, like Paul's letters to the Romans or the Corinthians? Is it, um, you know, historical narrative, like, you know, Genesis, Exodus kind of thing? Is it um, law-giving, like Leviticus? Is it poetry, like Psalms or Ecclesiastes? Is it uh, Proverbs? Is it wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Job? um is it prophecy prophecy is its own genre and then of course you've got the big one uh, revelation at the end which is apocalyptic literature which is not even a type of genre that we have today it was only popular for a couple hundred years around the time of christ and so you've got different types of writing and each type of writing has a particular sort of subset of how to understand the elements of that writing um, you know, for example, a letter is going to have, you know, uh, the address at the beginning, you know, I, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church in Corinth, grace and peace be to you. That's, a, that's actually a common opening of first century Roman letters. Um, you, you could take any secular letter from that time, and they would kind of follow that same sort of pattern. And then you have a body, and then you have a closing where you give greetings to people to and from, uh, you know, the, the place where you're writing to. And so, you know, that has a certain sort of flow to it, a certain, you know, uh, has certain elements of it that's going to exist within that particular type of genre. Poetry is going to have a lot of figurative, poetic, you know, metaphorical language. So when it talks about, you know, God's mercy flowing like a river, you know, down the mountains and, and overwhelming us, and you know, I mean, That's We know and understand from the genre of literature that that's poetic language, that that's not literally God's love is physically manifesting itself as a flood and and sweeping us away. And so you have to understand the genre, the literary context as well, in order to understand what a particular passage might mean. Because you don't necessarily know, just from an isolated case, whether... A verse is speaking literally about something happening, or figuratively, metaphorically, poetically speaking about something. Uh, you'll see a lot of that in poetry as well. I'm not poetry, uh, prophecy. Prophecy has a lot of metaphors and figures of speech and um, you know, um, <clears throat> exaggerations and things like that. That's, that's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant for, uh, you know, to cause an effect, to, to, um, to invoke a response, an emotional response to what's being read to them. And so you, know, you have to consider that level of context as well. The next level you've got is the cultural context. The cultural context, because once again, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. When, you know, the Gospels were written, they weren't written to Pastor Jay here in, you know, 2022. It was written to a first-century audience, and a first-century audience that was in Palestine and Judah, uh, you know, that was a certain type of person from a certain type of culture, from a certain type of background, uh, that had a historical, you know, narrative of their nation that had existed for thousands of years— you know so i mean there there's a lot that's going on in behind the scenes and this is the part where people really kind of get bogged down because we don't understand the cultural context and the next one we'll talk about the historical context of what's going on because it's not our culture it's not our context and so that's where we have to do study this is where we have to dig into history books and we have to dig into commentaries and we have to dig into bible dictionaries and Theological dictionaries to be able to understand what was going on and why that matters to this particular passage. Um, for example, and I'll, I'll give you one here: Luke seven, Luke seven thirty-six through thirty-nine. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, uh, asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee, uh, Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and began standing behind him at his feet, weeping, and she wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this, this person is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. And so he goes on, Jesus goes on to give a, a great uh, a parable and says, hey, this woman's sins are forgiven because she has great faith. So what we need to understand about this is all the cultural issues. There's actually a ton of cultural things going on. First of all, you've got a Pharisee who's one of the religious leaders uh, of a certain sect of of Judaism going on in Jerusalem and Judea. And he has invited Jesus over to dinner, which would have been considered a very righteous thing to do. He's inviting a religious rabbi in. He's being hospitable, which is another cultural deal that would go on in the Middle East. Um, He brings Jesus in and says Jesus is reclining which means this was not just your everyday common meal This is actually a great banquet being held in his honor. And so this is a great honor that's being bestowed upon Jesus An honor to all that would have been at it Uh, And and it certainly wouldn't have been just this Pharisee and just Jesus There would have been other people that would have been invited here as well for this this great this great feast and then you have this, uh, this alabaster jar of perfume, uh, which is probably uh, used for anointing the dead. Uh, you'll see that same kind of thing when the, the ladies wanted to anoint Jesus' body when, of course, he had resurrected. And they didn't get to use that. But here she's got this, you know, this piece of uh, uh, expensive uh, pottery uh, with this expensive oil in it. And then it says some interesting things. It says she cries on his feet, washes it with her uh, tears, and then wipes it with her hair. Well, for a woman to go with her hair undone was a, uh, well, would have made her a floozy. I mean, she would have been a prostitute basically. Uh, women that walked around with their hair not not braided up or done up were considered streetwalkers, prostitutes. They were considered, you know, looked down upon. And so that's what he's saying. It's like, how does this how does this rabbi not know what type of woman this is that she's doing this? And so, and then you know, later on, Jesus says, "Hey, you didn't give me a bowl of water to anoint my head, or, or oil to anoint my head, or water to even wash my feet," uh, and comparing him with the with the woman. And so, that's some other cultural things that would go on because in in Jew in Jewish society in that time, you know, to. It was a common courtesy to provide a bowl of water for them to wash the dust from their feet or to wash their hands before they sit down for a meal, uh, cleanliness laws being what they were. And interestingly enough, here's a Pharisee who was very focused on law, who wasn't providing uh, you know, those types of things for Jesus. And so there's a lot of cultural issues going on in there, and you miss a lot of what's happening if you don't understand some of the cultural things that are happening in the background. And so, the last level of context that you need to consider, as well, sort of closely connected to culture, is the historical context as well. What it meant to the audience of that time that it was being written in, because once again, that's not 21st century culture; it's first century culture, and even in BC cultures, you know, all the way back to you know, 1500 BC. So, I mean, you're talking thousands of years ago. This was a different culture, different time, different geography, different language. I mean it's the the people of the Bible were as foreign to us as people on the moon. I mean it, it was a, it was a completely completely different time, different culture, different language, different types of people groups. I mean it, it's something that's so hard for us to comprehend in this day and age. This is why we have to study to understand what some of these things meant. For example, when you're reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, we need to understand some of the cultures and the influences upon those those old testament jews that were you know influencing the things that are being written in the bible for example uh, ancient near eastern cultures the ugaritic culture the Bab- ancient babylonians assyrians akkadians sumerians uh, the canaanites the hittites the hivites you know, all all of these cultures around them have expansive, expansive uh, literary you know, things that have been you know, produced and, and um, uh, uncovered by archaeologists for, you know, uh, you know, for the last several decades that have been, you know, brought to light a lot of meaning and understanding to the context, the historical context, in which the Old Testament was produced. You know, for example, you have a lot of references in the Hebrew Old Testament To things like in job you have the leviathan and behemoth well leviathan was a chaos monster it was a chaos beast that was very relevant um to um ancient babylonian ancient sumerian uh mythologies and so it's not saying that those things are true but he's saying like god is greater than leviathan whereas uh, i believe it was marduk that had to like wrestle and fight leviathan and finally overwhelmed him and then i think he died himself in the process and so i mean there's you know it's comparing the you know the true god to sort of these lesser deities and saying hey these gods are not worth your worship the one true god is the one that you should be worshiping and so it helps us to understand all these references that they're doing and it's not that dissimilar to what we do today as a pastor i make references and we you know we call them sermon illustrations now I might reference and say hey you know that time in the movie braveheart or i've used the matrix you know uh, those types of things those are cultural you know relevant uh, issues for us today that's something that everybody can relate to and i use it as an illustration to make the point that i'm trying to make a lot of the old testament is doing the same thing they're saying they're comparing and contrasting. These ancient cultures uh, myths and, and legends and things that they're doing and comparing and contrasting them to what Jehovah God is saying or Yahweh God is saying and so that's important for us to understand because we miss a lot of the meaning when we don't understand those historical cultures and backgrounds um, there's also a lot of important writings uh, that are not in the Bible that are not in the, the canon that we have now Uh, If you're Catholic, Catholics actually have something called the Apocrypha, that's some books that were included in there between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament that's written in that Second Temple period. We call it the intertestamental period, as in in between the Testaments, Old and New. Uh, But the Second Temple literature was actually heavily, heavily influential upon the first century Jewish community and the first century Christian church. And so there are actually a number of works that are referenced and alluded to in the New Testament that most people don't even know exist and have, of course, have never read or studied. Uh, but books like First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Lives of the Patriarchs, uh, you know, the Apocalypse of Moses, the Assumption of Moses. I mean, there's, uh, for, Fourth Ezra, the Wis- Wisdom of Solomon. And there's a ton of, you know, they're called pseudepigraphal works or intertestamental or Second Temple literature that were heavily influential upon works in the New Testament. Uh, the book of First Enoch probably being the most important one. 1 uh, Enoch is alluded to in Paul. He's alluded to in First and Second Peter. Uh, is directly quoting a section word for word in the book of Jude. Uh, there is a number of concepts and theological issues that prop up in the book of Revelation that come directly from First Enoch that appear nowhere else in the Bible. Um, the lake of fire that's in the book of, uh, of Revelation is nowhere else in the entire Bible. It's found from First Enoch. And so there's a ton, a ton of different things that we need to understand and be aware of to understand the cultural references that the writers of the Bible are making so that we can better understand what the meaning is in that particular context. So, once again... <laughs> Going back to our key principles, what did the passage mean to the original audience? What is the difference between that audience and me, bridging that gap, the hermeneutical gap, and then finding the universal principle of that passage in order to be able to apply it to me today? So, for example, if we were to read Exodus 17. Exodus 17 is the story about, you know, they're wandering out in the wilderness, and God commands Moses to strike a rock, and water is going to come out of the rock, right? well if i'm reading that i need to you know understand the culture understand the history of what's going on there and then i need to pull out principles universal principles of what's happening in order to apply that to me if i was to read the bible and just do what it says as you know i've heard so many times then it might imply that I should go out into a desert wandering, and when I get thirsty, I should strike a rock with a stick so God will give me water. Well, quite frankly, if I was to actually do that, I would probably die. Because that's not what the Bible is saying. It's telling us about a specific historical event that happened that has not necessarily going to be repeated with you So if you go out in the desert and try to strike a rock, you're most likely not going to have water come out so What does that mean then? Well, I need to take the principles. Well, what are some of the principles? Well, the principles are well God provides for the needs of his people Um, Some of the principles might be God provides for us even when it seems like there's no way that he could provide for us I mean, they're in the middle of a desert water doesn't usually come out of a rock Uh, It might mean that God provides for us and is true to his character, his nature, his promises, even in the face of our unbelief, because all the people were grumbling and complaining and weren't believing that God was going uh, to save them when when this miracle took place. And so those are universal principles that I can pull from that story and then apply to my daily life and understand that God's going to provide for me even when it seems like there's no other way, and even despite sometimes my unbelief in what he's going to do. So that's the goal of finding context and understanding, is to be able to take those things, find the principles, and be able to apply it to us today. Unfortunately, a lot of people miss that step when they're not thinking about context, they're not trying to pull the principles out, they're just reading what the Bible says literally about something, and then trying to go out and do it themselves. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of uh, cults and sort of you know, weird fundamentalist kind of things go off in the left field with their understanding and their theology is because they're misusing uh, scripture so context is king all right the next part i want to talk about today is how to do an effective word study because part of context is understanding what the words in a particular passage mean what they mean within that initial context and then as we talked about what they mean in the wider context what they meant historically and culturally to the community that it was written to, and then how we can apply that to our lives today. Um, when you're reading a passage of Scripture, you're going to come across some words that, number one, you may not understand exactly what it means. It may be a word that's repeated a couple of times in a passage, and so you're kind of little light bulbs going off saying, hmm, this, this word must be important. It's been repeated a few times. Uh, and so when you're doing a proper word study, you want to be able to see what a word actually means, and this is where Bible dictionaries and things like that come in handy. Uh, it's where a lot of online resources I'll share with you next week will come in handy in understanding a word. Um, obviously, once again, just reminding you the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. These are, And these are not even modern Hebrew and Greek that we have today. Uh, the modern versions of Hebrew and Greek are... Pretty, pretty different. There's very, very little actually in common, and so that's something to remember. Words change in meaning over time. Uh, I always love to give the illustration, and uh, I mentioned last week. You know, I don't have a problem with the King James version of the Bible as a translation. It's actually a really good, pretty solid translation. There are a few places like we talked about that that this just plain wrong in its translation, but none of those things that are majorly important for any major doctrine. But one of the problems I have with the King James Version is because the language is so outdated. Uh, I mean, um, I always laugh because you got some of these King James only people that are like, why ascribe to the original 1611 King James Bible? I guarantee you, no one that says that has ever actually read the original 1611 Hebrew, I mean, not Hebrew, uh, King James Version Bible, because it's unreadable. Even though it's in the English language, The words have changed so much in 400 years that it's unreadable. I mean, I just tried to read one passage, and I was like, I can't understand half of what this is saying. The words have changed so much. And even in the more modern translations, uh, more updated translations of the King James, there are still words that have changed in meaning since those things were put together. I always like to use the example of the, the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, love is patient love is kind love does not look to its own but and all that kind of stuff well in the king james version it says charity charity availeth much you know charity never fails charity is this charity is that well it made sense you know decades ago to use the word charity to to mean love because it's you know all-encompassing self-sacrificing love is what it meant well if you were to talk to you know a young person teenager today and talk about charity they're not thinking about love. They're thinking about Red Cross or Habitats for Humanity or something. They're not, they're thinking like a charity organization, a charitable organization. They're not thinking love, and so the word has changed in meaning. Um, another one that, that, that you know we've seen in our own times is uh, the word "gay." Gay, you know, decades ago meant happy, cheerful. Uh, you know, people were even named gay. And then you know somewhere along the line it came to to be uh, used for homosexual uh, people, and so now gay means something different. And then of course teenagers have even used the word gay to to mean something like stupid, like well that's gay. So I mean that one word has changed meaning just in a few decades. So imagine thousands of years removed how some of these words have changed, and so. Doing a proper word study means you need to look, not just within that one book, but see where that word is used elsewhere in the Bible and where it has meaning may change. Also, even if you look up a definition of the word, doesn't mean that it always means that same thing in every context, because, once again, context is king. Um, If I was to use the word um, run... Well, I can run a race, I can run an errand, I can go for a run, that's something different, or I have a run in my hose or a run in the carpet, that's something different, or I have, you know, there's running water in the faucet. Well, all those are different meanings, some of them completely different meanings for the same word, and sometimes we have that in the Bible as well. As I mentioned, you know, there are a lot of shades and variances of meaning that we miss because the English translation might just translate a Hebrew word with one English word to do like a one-to-one correspondence, but there are a lot of shades of meaning. Uh, Hebrew, in particular, uh, has a very limited vocabulary compared to Greek and even English, and so it'll oftentimes use the same word or a slight variation of a word to mean multiple things. Um, A good example of this is uh, chesed uh, in Hebrew, which is usually the word that gets translated as loving kindness or steadfast love, mercy, pity, faithfulness. I mean, it carries with it all these implications, but we just tend to translate it as one of those things, but it's really all of those things, the the never-ending, everlasting, uh, never-failing love of God. It's all that same word. Uh, in Greek, you have some of the same things. The, uh, once again, love, is, it, it, there's uh, four or five different Greek words to, to convey love. There's eros, there's phileo, there's uh, storge, and then, of course, agape is the one that everybody knows. Well, all those are translated as love uh, in English, but they have different meanings. And so you need to understand what those meanings are when you do a word study. And uh, used to, when you do a word study, you would look up the Strong's Concordance number. I don't even know if anybody uses concordances anymore. Uh, There's just too much uh, software and things that kind of do that work for you. But, you know, there used to be a big old book like a dictionary, a Strong's Concordance. I remember having one of those when I first started seminary. And you'd look up the word, and it would have a certain number, a a Strong's reference number, and you'd be able to look that up. A lot of your basic Bibles today have those. They'll have the little letters or the numbers out beside a particular word and they'll have other verse references that'll show you where that word shows up in other passages. So you need to look and see, well, what does this word mean in this passage over here? What does the word mean in this passage over here? And that might give you variances and shades of meaning uh, that you don't necessarily understand otherwise. One important thing that you need to understand is that just because a word sounds similar to something in English, doesn't mean that there's a correspondence to that. Um, I'll give you a good sort of infamous infamous illustration going back to that Revelation sort of prophecy stuff. There's a lot of prophecy stuff that comes out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, it talks about Gog and Magog, and those appear in the book of Revelation as well. And a lot of prophecy nuts have kind of gone off and left field with some of this stuff because they'll say, well, it says, you know, Gog the Prince of Roche, R O S H, Prince of Meshach and Prince of Tubal. All right, and so I've seen. I've read a ton of books where people say, "Aha! These are. This is the Prince of Russia because Roche." In Russia sound very similar and Meshach and Moscow sound very similar and Tubal and Tobolsk sound very similar those are cities in Russia so this must be talking about Russia as a future enemy to the people of God and Israel Um, and and you may you may have heard that before unfortunately not at all that's all completely nuts Uh, because the word Rosh even though it sounds like Russia has nothing to do with Russia. The word Rosh actually means chief. And so you'll see a lot of the modern translations will say Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And then uh, I don't have time to get into it, but there's a whole geographical area that's nowhere near Russia. It's actually more to the southwest of Russia uh, is where these cities are actually located historically. And so understanding the words and how those meanings go together uh, will give you a lot of... uh, um, well, it'll it'll improve your understanding of Scripture better than just some of these these guys that, unfortunately, write a lot of books and have a lot of publicity, but really don't have, know how to read Scripture at all. Um, and so, so make sure you're reading the words and understanding what they mean in the context that they are given. Words matter in the context in which they are written. And so, all right. Well that's probably good enough for today uh context and words matter words matter in context Um, next time i'm going to talk about genre Uh, that's going to be kind of the last thing i'll talk about genre and how we uh, approach and and look at the different genres of the bible and how we can properly understand and interpret and do proper bible study and effective bible study given the genres and the, the different types of writing And then the last part of that segment, I'm going to give you some uh, and talk about some easy references. Most of them are online uh, that anybody can access and use that are completely free, that are all pretty solid uh, works that you can have access to that will help you immensely in your Bible study and be able to dig deeper and go deeper into the Scripture. And so we'll get into that next time for that final part of our Doing Effective Bible Study. In two weeks, starting in February, uh, we'll be back here, and uh, I'll be starting the book of Ephesians. And I'll give an introduction for that, and then the next week I think uh, Travis will be joining me again. And so we'll see you guys next time. Have a great week.